We will now have the Bible reading. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a hard black uh, back one on the pew racks in front of you. We would love for you to follow along. Today's reading will be from the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 27, verse 1, into chapter 28, verse 5. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it should be starting on page 2-5. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son... And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me, so that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare them from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies." But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands, and on the smooth parts of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because of his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate. And he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, and blessed him, and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven, and of the fatness of the earth, and the plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, 
and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham." Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Well done, Brian. <laughs> I feel like you should get a, a cheering standing applause. That was a long reading. Thank you very, very much. 
Um, well, this morning we're going to be continuing on in our series in the book of Jacob through the book of Genesis. And I contend that Jacob is probably the most misunderstood characters in the Bible. His life is in one sense caught up in the mayhem and the chaos of human existence. He lives amidst this dysfunctional family with a brother who wants to kill him. His father-in-law deceives him into marrying his fiancée's sister. His own father has no regard for him. He's cast away from his family. He steals birthrights from his brothers. And yet amidst all of that, it seems that God looks at Jacob with approval and he guides him and he shows him mercy at every point. And at the end of Jacob's life, he's even renamed Israel, which turns out to be the name of the family God will use to bless every nation. What do we do with a character like Jacob? And I argue he's one of the most misunderstood characters. Misunderstood, kind of like, have you ever had one of those situations where you start using a phrase that maybe your parents used, but you don't exactly know what it means until one day, maybe like you're at a party or something, and you say this phrase, and everyone says, what did you say? Nothing, nothing. I didn't say anything. I don't exactly know what it means. I want to give a couple examples of misunderstood phrases. One of them, this first one, is um, one that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I could care less. Have you ever heard people use this phrase? I could care less, meaning I don't care at all. Except that's not the phrase, is it? Does anyone know the actual phrase? That's right, my people. I couldn't care less. Oh, I hear I could care less about once a week. It's I couldn't care less. Because if you could care less, that means that there's some amount of care you could care less for. I couldn't care less means you're at ground zero. You could not care any less. So let's all start using I couldn't care less. (laughs) The next one is a Peter misunderstanding, not, I think, maybe maybe we'll find someone else who misunderstood this next phrase, but this is just me personally. I spent 22 years not understanding this phrase. The sky is the limit. Has anyone heard the sky is the limit phrase? Yeah? It's like, it's limitless. There's not really a limit at the sky we can see, so the possibilities are endless. Except when you say the sky is the limit, what does it sound like you're saying? No one says, the sky is the limit. Everyone says, the sky's the limit. Now, for me, as a five-year-old, what I heard was, disguise the limit. <laughs> Which I think is a better interpretation, right? There's some limit over there. Granted, we're not, we're not God. There is some limit. But we need to disguise the limit as if there is no limit. So I contend that's a better reading of that phrase. Whatever it is, there are many moments where we kind of have these these uh, things we grow up with, these stories, these phrases, where we think, this is what it means, this is what it says, but actually we find out we're misunderstood. And I think that's kind of like Jacob. Now, one of the reasons I think we don't often quite know what to do with Jacob is because we like these clean, simple categories to help us read these old, ancient, biblical stories, right? Good guy, bad guy. Either I copy what they do, or they're a bad example for me. So let's take Cain, for example. You know Cain? Cain and Abel murdered his brother. Anyone say Cain is a good guy? All right, bad guy. Anybody think Cain is a bad guy? Okay, I've got... All right. What about Abraham? Anyone think Abraham, bad guy? Good guy. What about the time when he slept with his servant, with his wife's sister, and he didn't trust the Lord? Is he, he's, he's the good guy, right? The father. And what about Jacob? Conniving deceiver, right? Bad guy, bad guy. Is he? Is he the bad guy? I would suggest that this idea of good guy, bad guy is not helpful when we're looking at the biblical text. Instead, a better category is human, a fallen image bearer. 
We come, Cain, not good guy, bad guy, human. We come to Abraham, good guy, bad guy, no, no, human, fallen image bearer. Jacob, good guy, bad guy, no, human, fallen image bearer. The story of Genesis is less about how people behave and more about how God works through the chaos to bring order and how God works through evil to bring blessing. But secondly, I think we misunderstand Jacob because of the story we just heard read. Now, if you've grown up in the church, or you might know a story well, or you might just know a story well in general. But we've all come to the conclusion and assumption that Jacob did this evil thing of deceiving this old, weak father and his harmless brother. But I want to show you today that there's much more going on and a much more profound message that, than we normally associate with this story. I mean, the point comes across when you say, I could care less, but it's I couldn't care less. Yes, deception in theory is wrong, but not really in this story. So if you're unfamiliar with this story, you're in a really good spot. And for those of us who know the story, I want to ask you, will you please momentarily suspend your conclusions about Jacob and what the story means so that it can come alive to us this morning? Can we do that? All right, let's pray together and ask God for help. Father, we recognize that you speak in and through your word, and so we want you to do that today. We want to have listening ears, may give us um, discerning eyes and hearts, and may we find a blessing in this text this morning. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we jump in, I just need to set the scene a bit. As many of you know, the story of Genesis begins with a garden, as we know, full of God's blessing and his presence and his peace. And in this garden, God creates humans in his image, male and female, and he blesses them and tells them to cultivate and to multiply. But as we know, only a few paragraphs later, in the garden, a serpent begins to tempt humanity to eat the forbidden fruit. And in a moment of weakness, humanity decides to take the forbidden fruit. They will be their own God, reject the God that made them, which in turn gets them cast out of the garden, away from the presence and the peace and the blessing of God. So humanity falls into chaos. It's cursed by death and sin. But however, in Genesis 3, amidst all the darkness, it's all this darkness, there's a glimmer of hope that one day there will be a descendant that will come from the woman who will crush the head of the evil one. One day there will be a man, a person, a Messiah, who will restore humanity back to the presence and blessing of God. In other words, God has a plan to restore humanity through a descendant. So as we have looked last week, we saw the entire book of Genesis really is categorized by this statement. These are the generations of, fill in the blank, these are generations of Noah. These are the generations of Seth, and on and on it goes. Why? Because we are meant to be asking the question, Is this the descendant that's going to be the serpent crusher? Is this going to be the one that will save us? Which descendant is it going to be? And throughout Genesis, we we begin to see a family line emerge from Noah to Shem to Abraham, and God meets with Abraham, and he says, I'm going to multiply your family, and your family's going to bless all the others in the earth, which echoes that blessing in the garden promising the Messiah descendant will come from Abraham's family. And so last week, we picked up the story of Abraham's son, Isaac, and his wife, Rebekah. The Lord gives Rebekah children. In fact, he gives them two twins, Jacob and Esau. But very importantly, before they're born, the Lord appears to her, and he tells her how he's going to work through these children, who the descendant of the promise will be. So quickly, chapter 25, verse 23 says this. It says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. 
The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. As we saw, Esau was the older brother who was born first, and Jacob the younger. So from their birth, we know who's destined to carry on this line. It's Jacob. No doubt the whole family knows this well. However, as we saw, as the boys grew up, Isaac starts playing favorites. And his favorite isn't Jacob, it's Esau, the older brother. We come to find that Esau despises the birthright. He doesn't care about the covenant promised to his family. He's violent, he's wayward. And so at this point in the story, the covenant is in jeopardy. What's going to happen? We know God promised Rebekah that Jacob would carry the covenant blessing, but Isaac, the patriarch, has become turned in on himself and favors the older brother, not what God had promised. Esau despises the birthright. He has no intention of following the Lord in the covenant promise. The covenant is in jeopardy. What's going to happen? Who will be the descendant? With the story set, let's enter now the story. First, let's read the first four verses of chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, so he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And he prepared for me delicious food, such as I love, so that I may eat, and my soul may bless you before I die. So about 50 years have passed since the last uh, incident we saw last week. And we see Isaac is old, and we see he's blind. Now, in biblical literature... This is not, there's not usually that much detail given to stories like this. So when details are given, they're not just there to sort of color in the landscape. And the first thing we hear is, in this story is that Isaac is blind. No doubt he's old, and that's one thing that can happen with age. However, the writer of Genesis also uses this theme of seeing to communicate more than just physical blindness. As we see the story unfold, we, know, we will notice that Isaac is spiritually and morally blind as well. Because look at what he asks of Esau. He says, go hunt game for me so I can have one last good meal, and then I can bless you before I die. Isaac, after 50 years, is still relating to his son through Esau's ability to hunt and provide for him. Notice also, Isaac doesn't call Esau to bless him because he's his beloved son. He calls Esau primarily to hunt game, to prepare it the way he likes, so he can have his favorite meal before he dies and bless Esau. Again, this he knows this should not happen. God has already promised to bless Jacob. Secondly, though, it's also very odd that Isaac here doesn't call the whole family or even Jacob into the room to announce the blessing. In that culture, a pronouncement of blessings was a whole family affair. We see this in Jacob's life when he blesses all 12 of his sons, even when their blessings aren't really much at all. To bless was to give your sort of intended will and destiny to your children. And here, we have Isaac, the promised child of Abraham, going against what God already said, told the family how he intended to work. He's still crushing Esau with favoritism. He's still objectifying him. He's going behind his wife Rebecca's back, completely forgetting about his second son, who just so happens to be the promised one. Isaac is blind. Both physically and spiritually, he's not led by God's will. He is, con- he is not continuing in his father Abraham's path. He has decided to take matters into his own hands. Why? 
because he's hungry, both physically and spiritually, and he thinks somehow I know how to satisfy that hunger. The covenant is in jeopardy. So Esau heads off to go hunt, and it's only a matter of hours before God's plans are thwarted, except in verse 5 we read this. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau. So let's see what Rebekah does, continuing on in verse 6. Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So, Rebecca wants to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob. But notice what's going on here. Rebecca is the one who's coming up with the whole idea of tricking blind Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Now, if you're normally like me, normally the way it goes in my mind is, Jacob is the one characterized as the crafty son who plots to trick his poor old weak father and steal from his brother. But Rebecca here, the righteous mother, is the one who comes up with the plan cooks the food, and convinces Jacob to go ahead with it. Looking at verse 11, Jacob says this, Jacob said, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Jacob in this story is very concerned about honoring his father and not mocking him. And he's even fearful that this might turn in to bringing a curse upon him, not a blessing. Jacob seems quite hesitant, really, to go ahead with this plan of tricking his father. But then look at the audacity of Rebekah in verse 13. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Rebekah is essentially saying, Let the curse be on me. She's saying, I take full responsibility if anything goes wrong. Rebecca is so committed to this plan, she's committed to swapping out Esau for Jacob. Why? Because the covenant matters to her. She heard God speak, though, 70 years ago. She heard the promise that Jacob, the younger, would be served by Esau. Even if her twisted, blind husband is set on rejecting God's plan, she isn't going to let that happen. So what does she do? Picking up in verse 14. So she went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. When Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son Jacob. Her plot is to replicate Esau's food by taking the goats and spicing them, to dress up Jacob in Esau's clothing and then cover him in animal skins so he's hairy like his brother. So that if Isaac touches Jacob, he'll be tricked and he will give Jacob his intended blessing for Esau. She wants Jacob to impersonate Esau to receive the blessing. It's quite an elaborate plot, isn't it? This is normally where we get caught up in the story. We think Jacob is this dishonest, cruel, slippery man. But really, look who's pushing this forward. It's Rebecca. In fact, the writer of Genesis doesn't cast Jacob in any negative light at all. 
He's merely obeying his righteous mother, granted apprehensively because he doesn't want to cause any dishonor. Jacob is not sitting back thinking how he can trick everyone. He is at the crossroads of the mayhem and chaos of his family and the mercy and the providence of God. Now, I know some of you might not be buying this, but what happens next in the story is not necessarily wrong. Again, if we're taking the story at face value and Jacob is either a good guy or a bad guy, then yes, I agree. In general, 95% of the time, you shouldn't lie or deceive your old father. I agree with that. You probably shouldn't base your interactions with your family this afternoon off this story. However, however, in Genesis and the rest of the Bible, there are many incidents when deception is applauded and even blessed. And the common factor amongst all these instances is that there is a character of a power-hungry tyrant or oppressive force. I'll even argue that deception is one of the most commonly used tactics we applaud in our pop culture. In the, kids, in the movies that our kids watch. Let me give you a couple examples. Has anyone ever seen this movie? Mulan? Yeah? What does she do? Deceive her, deceive her family? Deceive all the people around her? She dresses up as a man to be able to fight the Huns, right? She deceives in order to fight a tyrant. Or what about our beloved Robin Hood? What does he do? Deceives a wealthy, power-hungry tyrant to set free the captives. Or maybe a little bit older, what about Lord of the Rings? Do we not see deception in Lord of the Rings and we applaud it? We don't even bat an eye. You, you probably can't see this bottom picture, but this is where Frodo and Sam dress up as hairy orcs to put the ring into Mount Doom. We don't say, oh, they did a really bad thing there. Or let's give some biblical examples. In Exodus, we have Pharaoh telling all the Hebrews to hand in their male firstborns to be slaughtered. Yet the Hebrew midwives lie, deceive, and smuggle the children out. And they're, they're applauded. Or what about Rahab, right? Rahab hides Israelites, and she lies in order to protect them. We don't bad an eye about that. And we could give more and more. We have Jael and Judges. We have Abraham and Pharaoh. There are many instances in the Bible When you have a power-hungry tyrant, you have two options. Meet them head-on and fight fire with fire, which is very unlikely you'll win, or to try and trip them up or deceive them. No one argues about deception when Nazis knock on the door and ask questions. No one pauses to consider the ethics of deceiving an intruder who's just broken into your home. In In those moments, deception is like a Trojan horse, a way, of, a way of getting behind enemy lines. And oftentimes, get this, oftentimes, holy deception does not just mean your protection and your blessing, but also the blessing of the enemy. And in this story, Isaac has turned into a blind, power-hungry patriarch who's more concerned about his physical hunger than either of his sons. And he's about to throw God's promised covenant of blessing away for his own preference. He thinks he has the right to wield God's blessing and wreck this blessed family. Now, quite easily, Rebecca and Isaac, upon hearing Isaac's plan, could have very easily went up to him honestly and bantered with him. But we know that wouldn't have worked. In order to protect the covenant and indirectly bless Isaac, deception was the only alternative. This is the point. 
What Jacob does is not evil. What Isaac wants to do, that's evil. What Jacob does is not evil. What Isaac wants to do is evil. So let's see if this plan to thwart Isaac's plan, evil plan, works. Would you read with me, starting in verse 18? So he went into his father to his father and said, My father, he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up, eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. Can you feel the tension rising? If this was a movie, the string section would start swelling, the camera angles would be tight. Isaac suspects something's fishy's going on. But let's see how Isaac tries to suss this out, continuing in verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, and know whether you are really my son or not. He asks to touch him. Continue on in 22. So Jacob went near to his Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. His father recognizes his voice. He hears what seems to be Jacob. Does he know something is up? Continuing in verse 23. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son, Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me. They may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. While he's starting to believe it's Esau, he asks to taste the food. For that's going to be the real determining factor, isn't it? Is this the game meat that Isaac knows so well? Did Rebekah do a good enough job spicing the food to trick him? And then finally in verse 26, Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. In this final moment, Isaac smells the dirty, raw garments, and he decides to bless the son in front of him. Now, as we look back, we notice how Isaac determined which son was in front of him. He used touch to feel his arms. He recognized Jacob's voice. He tasted the food. And finally, he smelled Jacob. Was anyone counting? How many senses is that? There it is, four senses, which means there's one missing. What's missing sense? Sight, sight. Again, the writer's not just pointing this out because he's physically blind. The writer's emphasizing that Isaac cannot see things for how they truly are. He doesn't recognize how foolish and ridiculous his actions are. He can't even recognize his own son. And he cares so little about this blessing that he's happy to give God's blessing out behind closed doors Half, of, half aware of what's actually going on. And finally, we see the blessing. We don't have time to read through the blessing, but Isaac blesses Jacob just as it had been foretold, and Jacob leaves just as he's been blessed, and Esau enters the scene. Finally, we have the curse. Esau comes in from hunting, as his father had asked. He prepares his food, and when he comes to Isaac... Isaac is disturbed, and he's confused because in his mind, he just blessed Esau. And yet, here's the real Esau, right back from the hunt. And we see the moment that Isaac realizes what has just happened. The writer of Genesis says, he trembled violently. He wept. He recognizes without hesitation that Jacob had just come deceitfully to take the blessing. Esau's enraged, and he says this in verse 36. 
Esau said, is it, not, is it not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? This is where we have the name cheater or deceiver associated with Jacob. This is the first time that happens. Remember, originally, Jacob's name meant heal or may he protect. But here, it's warped to mean a cheater or a deceiver. Remember last week, Jacob's name didn't originally mean to trip or deceit. But here, Esau is effectively saying, Oh, the irony. My brother that's called heel because he trips people. Amidst the red-hot anger, Esau asks his father if he still has one last blessing for him. We don't have time to read that either, but as we have already read, he says, no, I don't have anything left. I've given it all to Jacob. And you can go home today and look at the contrasts between the blessing of Jacob and the blessing of Esau. Now, what's shocking about this is that normally in the context of blessing of multiple sons, the, first, the firstborn would get a significant size of the blessing. However, there would obviously be some, obviously there would be some left over for the other brothers. But here we see just how evil Isaac's intentions were. He intended to give everything to Esau. But as Jacob has taken the blessing, there's nothing left for him. We see this in the black and white contrast between the blessings. He will have the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, the food and the wine, and he will be Lord. And then Esau's, he will dwell away from the fatness of the earth and the dew of the heaven. He will live by the sword, and he shall serve his brother. Not much left for Esau, is there? The exact opposite of what Isaac had intended, but exactly what the Lord had promised to Rebekah those 70 years ago. Now, the looming question for many of us in the back of our mind is, or at least for me, if Isaac really wanted to bless Esau, and he thought he, could, he, he was blessing Esau, then upon hearing that Jacob deceived him, couldn't he take it back? Like, couldn't he be like, that one doesn't count? <laughs> Let's have a redo on that. Or is this some sort of incantation or magical saying? Well, kind of both. Let me try and give us an image of what a blessing is. A blessing in the Old Testament was this type of prophetic speech that performed something. That's, that is, it's not just descriptive. It's not like saying the sky is blue. The words have an effect on reality. So modern-day example, a wedding. Now, a few years ago, this is me and Emily at our wedding, and we were in the context of a family. We said vows, and then we said these two words, I do. She said them, I said them. And then something significant changed. In one sense, our speech redefined reality. When we said that, something happened. And in biblical terminology, two people became one flesh. We were joined. And it wasn't like, oh, isn't that sentimental? But we were actually made one. However, let's say that didn't happen. Let's say I had a crush on Emily, and Emily wanted nothing to do with me. But I plotted a way to get all of our families together, somehow have someone mutter vows quietly under their breath, and ask at the exact right time, Emily, do you believe the sky's blue? She says, I do. I quickly say, I do. Would that count? No, right? She, or she could at least say, I didn't mean it. I'm taking it back. Of course. In the first instance, I do is a reality-changing statement. In the second, Emily could easily say, I didn't mean that. I'm not marrying you. Similarly, this idea of blessing in the Bible is a reality-changing statement. It has repercussions after the life of the patriarch dies. However, it is not a magical incantation 
or pattern of words. So in short, yes, Isaac could have taken the blessing back. But, but notice he doesn't. He doesn't go back on what he has just said. After understanding what had just happened, Isaac doesn't just take the blessing back, but it says, carries on giving Esau nothing. That means that in the process, Isaac's eyes were opened and he came to grips with the will of God and with tears streaming down his face, he looked at his favored son in the eyes and he finally realized all he tried to do and thwart God's plan and how throughout all of it, God had not forsaken his promise. It is a story of restoration. His realization and repentance are one in the same thing. And that is the crux of the story. Not that Jacob stole the blessing because it was his in the first place, but that Isaac's sight had been restored and finally reconciled to God. No longer would he be a power-hungry tyrant refusing to submit to God, believe in the lie that he was the one in charge of the future, but he laid down his life and his family's future to God. And don't take my word for it. The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament places Isaac among the ancient fathers who showed incredible faith. You say, is this incredible faith? Take a look at what the writer of Hebrews includes Isaac for. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. The reason that Isaac is named among the faithful is because blessing Jacob and Isaac the way he did. The blessings ended up not being against his will. For in the deception of his will... His will was realigned with God's. Isaac is named among the faithful because he didn't take the blessing back. We don't have time to read through the next few verses, but we see Esau get quite upset enough to kill Jacob. So Rebekah makes his plan to send Jacob away for protection by convincing Isaac that he needs to marry amongst her family. But notice what Isaac does before Jacob leaves, right? If Isaac was so upset at Jacob and Rebekah, this wouldn't happen. In uh, chapter 28, verse 1, Then Isaac called Jacob, and he blessed him. And he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban. Then he says this, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. He not only blesses him again, but he connects his blessing with the original Abrahamic blessing. Isaac's sight has been restored through this act of deception. This confirms Isaac said what he meant. And this is the big idea, I think, of this story. Isaac had to see the way God works from the inside out. And this was Rebecca's prayer, right? We tend to think Rebecca kind of sitting back in the corner fretting, worried whether God would be able to cope and fulfill his promise if Isaac had his way. But that's not what's going on in Rebecca's mind. Rebecca wasn't doubting God's ability to convince Jacob or convince Isaac to deceive. She knew God would be able to work regardless whether or not Jacob or Isaac blessed Jacob. From the very beginning, Rebecca was concerned about Isaac's sight being restored. This deception was a prayer for her husband that he find the mercy of God by realigning his will to God's. Rebecca's plot was to manipulate this situation in such a way to bring about Isaac's restoration and God's plan. And the only way you can get a tyrant to lay down his weapons, to lay down his preferences, to lay down his power, hunger, to let go of his future, to give up his dominion, 
It's from the inside out. A Trojan horse to get behind enemy lines by thwarting his plans in order to save him. Is this not the picture of the way God continually works throughout the Old Testament to bring his blessing into the world? He uses evil plans of man. He uses the selfish, prideful hearts to bring about his glory and our good. He manipulates our evil desires to bring about our blessing. The book of Genesis ends with this refrain from Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. It says, what man meant for evil, God meant it for good. Just, like, just as Isaac's intention was twisted and evil and rebellious. In his act of trying to work against what God had said, Rebecca was reconfiguring the situation for his benefit to recover his sight and restore him to God. And is this not how God works in our lives too? If we're honest, we're a whole lot like Isaac, riddled with pride, self-centeredness, apathy. We live as our own little tyrants. We're power-hungry, guided more often than not by our hungers, physical hungers, sexual hungers, financial hungers, relationship hungers. As the book of Philippians says, our bellies are our gods. Yet we along with the rest of humanity, think we know what's best. And yet somehow God works in all of it to bring about his glory and our blessing. We see this dynamic most clearly thousands of years after Isaac and Rebekah, when God would actually send the serpent crusher, the Messiah, to earth in the person of his son. God sent his son into the world, clothed in our humanity, to save us. And yet we rejected him. We, along with the rest of humanity, said, no, thank you. We would far prefer to be our own rulers. We already know what's best. And so we, with the rest of humanity, drove him out of the city, away from his rightful throne, and instead placed him on an object of humiliation and shame. And we killed the Son of God, the promised Messiah himself. But, but at the cross, God was substituting sons. And even as humanity scoffed with every evil intention as Jesus hung upon that cross, God was working what we all intended for evil in order to bless us with his grace and wash us clean in Jesus' blood. We see God working amongst this small dysfunctional family in Genesis to bring blessing to the world. We see him continuing to work hundreds of families later by using his son to manipulate the situation in such a way that 2,000 years later, we're still sitting here redeemed and reconciled to a father of love. He used what we intended for evil in order to bless us and call us home. He used what we intended for evil so that right now today, for those of you who are hearing this for the first time, you might know you are forgiven and your father wants to welcome you home. God's will, his intention to bless the world and restore it, makes no sense from the outside looking in. It looked like a weak plan. Why choose the younger brother? Why choose this dysfunctional family? Why choose to send your son into the world knowing he died? It doesn't make any sense unless you see it from the inside out. Salvation is not necessarily the moment you decide to submit your will to God. Salvation is not you about, about you being strong. Salvation is the realization of what's already happened for us without us even being aware of it. You don't have to do anything. He's already done the swapping for you. All you need to do is see it. You're forgiven. You don't need to get up and clean yourself up before letting Jesus in to bless you because he's already sneaked through the back door. Grace doesn't enter through the front door. It enters through the back. So, as we close, what are we supposed to take away from this story? Well, for those of us who know that this is how God works, are we supposed to go home and start deceiving our family members? 
No, no. But we ought to remember that God is not done working. He's not done blessing. And as we await his return to reconcile all things to himself, may we put on the glasses of faith and stop looking at God's blessing from the outside. Rather, look at God's blessing from the inside and see the world as a theater of God's blessing, as an opportunity to see God work amongst the most unlikely people. Not the strong or the oppressive or the older most of the time, but most often amongst the weak and the poor and the younger brothers. And like Rebecca, may we be intently listening for the opportunity to show God's blessing of grace, even if it takes 70 years of waiting. Do not give up hope. Our God works in unexpected ways, using our broken lives to bless the people around us. And that's good news. So let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are amazed by your wisdom in bringing us home to be your sons and daughters. As we see this picture of a family and it looks to us like an ugly picture of deception, we see your plan of blessing and grace. So we ask today, would you continually open our eyes to your grace that often goes hidden and unnoticed in our lives. Please teach us to be listening for opportunities to put people in a spot where they can see your grace and mercy. May we continually be brought back to the wisdom of the cross that confounds the rulers of this age. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.